Hello and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm here today with Sophia Breckner and Byron Rich and they're going to be discussing sci-fi as inspiration for design and innovation. Sophia Breckner is an assistant professor at the University of Michigan at the Stamp School of Art and Design where her ongoing goal is to combine design and engineering with the perspective of an artist to create new technologies in the service of mental well-being. Byron Rich was born in Calgary, Alberta and currently serves as assistant professor of art at Allegheny College in Pennsylvania. And without further ado, I'm going to hand the conversation over to these two. Um, so we've been following each other online for a long time, but we have never met in person. Yes, we have not met in person, but we have been following each other digitally for so long. I feel like we know each other sort of well, at least in terms of work. So um, I have been teaching a science fiction class since 2011 when I was at RISD, and it, you've been teaching a science fiction class for a while, so I thought it'd be really cool to compare um, how we teach the classes. Totally. I agree. That would be super helpful to me. I'm a booster still, so uh, any insight I can glean from experienced folks, I'm happy to Yeah, I'm teaching this when I was still a student. Um, I'm still a baby professor, too. <laughs> cool. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I was, we were talking about the titles of our classes, and I think the first time I taught this class, it was called Exploring Sci-Fi, which was pretty boring. Um, and then I taught one called Science Fiction to Science Fabrication when I was at MIT. Um, I, and then I taught one called, that was specifically on wearable technology and transhumanism um, and cyborgs, uh, which was called Human Plus Computer. And that was between RISD, MIT, and I think Brown. And now, um, now I'm at U of M and I, I just simplify and I call it sci-fi prototyping, which everybody understands. Um, so what, what do you call your class? Uh, well, my class is less, sorry, I had to close the door there. My cat was attacking me. Um, my class is more of, it's, it's less, I don't know how to explain it. It's like a, a real intro level course where we're really supposed to be talking to the students about public speaking and writing and kind of building their skills in there. So I frame all that kind of uh, pedagogical stuff. Um, around Alan Kay's quote of the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Uh, and it's called art, techno, science, and culture, if I remember correctly. Um, so yeah, more or less, I just like try to introduce them into how so many of the ideas and technologies and philosophies are actually rooted in much older ideas and help them contextualize, like uh, help them understand that contextualizing their ideas that there's no such thing as like a technological revolution per se, that everything kind of comes out of a technology or an idea from the past. Um, and then I use sci-fi as the kind of uh, gateway to that kind of thinking. I like that quote. I might steal that. <laughs> Go for it. Steal whatever you like. The quote I always use, which I think um, illustrates what I'm doing in my class really well, is um, Frederick Pohl. Um, Actually, Ursula K. Le Guin, too, but I'll get to that one after. But um, Frederick Pohl has a really good quote. Um, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but that science fiction um, predicts not just the automobile, but also the car crash. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, so like that's kind of the point of the course I teach, which tends to be um, upper level or graduate level. Cool. And um, so, in, you know, going beyond, like, obviously, science fiction will give you a lot of really cool ideas for cool gadgets to build. Yeah. Um, you see, you can make a lot of like shiny gadgets or whimsical gadgets, but um, I think what's really important to learn from science fiction is that it teaches you to think extrapolatively about what happens when technology scales, and then um, what's gonna, what, what are the consequences of that going to be um, if, um, if you know, technological trends can, or societal trends continue to grow un, uh, unchecked. 
Sure. Yeah, I think that's like, see, I don't get the, the luxury of teaching graduate students. Mine's an all undergraduate college. I teach at little liberal arts school. But they're generally super brilliant kids that come in, but they still have such a lack of awareness of how, like when a technology gets inserted into culture, that the like, that it ripples out from that technology far more profoundly than just, you know, Snapchat filters or something like that. But that's actually like making a major statement on the the time we live in and is making so many like historical references and they don't seem to quite grasp onto that idea. Um, so yeah, even though they're only uh, 18 years old, generally, I think it's a super important thing for them to start thinking about uh, history and how most of these ideas are not nearly as new or revolutionary as they believe. Yeah, we've been reading some stories that were, I, I think kind of predicted like uh, um, online advertising and reality television. And um, I, I'm thinking of the story by James T. Jr., um, the girl that was plugged in. That was written oh, in the yeah. 70s, and um, mm -hmm. when I assigned it to the students, the students couldn't believe, you know, when it was written. And when I assigned Neuromancer, they actually, actually, what's been really funny is that a lot of them don't even think it's that interesting because they think it's just the way things are already. Right, so they, totally. That's exactly my experience teaching Neuromancer last year. Yeah, it's really weird. I thought they would all be like, amazed by how, you know, amazed by Neuromancer, but they all thought it was just kind of boring because it was just reality. But then I tell right, them yeah. when it was written, and then they sort of, you know, sort of understand why, um, why reading science fiction is important. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, interestingly, um, just a couple of days ago, one of the, the one of the things I really want my students to read, and the name of whichever text this came from, but was like a Carl Sagan uh, essay from '95 or '96, and that's earlier than a lot of like my intro students. Uh, or earlier than when they were born. And he talks about um, a moment in the near future, like when his grandchildren are coming of age and uh, what have you, uh, where um, more or less like critical thinking skills and uh, where America becomes like a service economy. Um, and he goes like into depth in this like really beautiful like prose as he usually does. And it's kind of poetic about this like near future scenario in which they're going to be purely prepared for a career rather than um, you know, any kind of like real thoughtful examination of culture. And I, I really am stoked to introduce my students to that quote, just because it's right around the same age as they are. And seeing the effect that like this new administration has had on, on so many of them as they're like coming to political awareness and whatever, I think it's going to be kind of like one of those, I'm hoping it's one of those moments where it's like, oh, we are part of a continuum uh, and not just like space-time continuum because we're talking about sci-fi. So but, you, have, you know. students haven't seen this, haven't read this yet? No, they haven't. So that's one of the things I'm just trying to integrate in there. I only stumbled across it yesterday, actually, while I was uh, doing some research for the class. So I'm looking forward that would to seeing really, that. It would be very interesting to see how um, undergraduates react to that. Totally. I'll send you some of their writings on it. Generally, they're pretty strong writers, so I won't be too embarrassed by uh, sending you what they, what they, their <laughs> ponderances on it. So, um, what, so most of the assignments in your class are writing assignments. Um. A lot of them are, yeah, I, a lot of the stuff is writing based, but being that I'm still like in an art department that's like wildly in flux, kind of moving from more traditional media to, I don't know, whatever it is that people like you and I do, um, which, you know, who knows how nebulous that is. Um, most of it is, yeah, pretty nebulous. So a lot of it is writing, but we also work uh, with my upper level students, the students that are like preparing for grad school on actually making some of their ideas come to fruition as like technologies so you know they they do a lot of the writing and theory on it and contextualization and then we work with the students that are working in like various like programming languages or circuit building or wearables or whatever or even biotech uh, to try to make like prototypes of this stuff so 
That's interesting. Um, I should have my students write more, I think. Um, I have them primarily make um, functional prototypes, or at least as functional as they could possibly get. Not everything is possible. Um, but definitely at least um, point where they have props where they can act out interactions, even if they can't, you know, make the technology exist. Totally. Well, and I, I'm sure, well, I, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, but I think like that kind of failure element, even if they don't get a fully functioning prototype or anything is super important for them to see like what challenges exist. And, you know, I think like those spectacular failures are as much of like a, a learning moment as, as a success in my mind. At least that's my perspective coming out of graduate school relatively recently. I feel like I learned a heck of a lot more from screwing up a technology and learning about its potential um, than I did actually making functional stuff. So, well, um, yeah, there's, uh, I'm thinking about one, um, one group of students I had in the, um, transhumanism class I taught and, mm -hmm. um, they, uh, told that we told them to build functional prototypes. And so they, they attempted, and it was a really interesting group. It was like, I think a, a fluid dynamicist and an architect and an electrical engineer who worked together or, um, from three different schools. So someone from Brown, someone from MIT, and someone from RISD. It was a really cool group. And they wanted to make um, this brain, they made this brain that they had, um, they went to a lab and they, you know, measured the weight of a human brain, its squishiness, and they actually made this model of a brain. And then they um, cast it and then filled it with LEDs. And then the LEDs would light up based on readings from an EEG cap. Cool. Uh, and it, it would be sending them wirelessly to this brain. Um, but if, yeah. and, but because they built, but the reaction, because they actually built it and let pe people experience it, like the re reaction was like completely unexpected. Because the thing that was really interesting about it is um, when, when you, when you wore the EEG cap and you were like holding the brain in your lap, you felt this very maternal sort of like feeling towards the brain. Like totally. uh, almost like your brain is like a pet or a cat or something. And then yeah, absolutely. And then it was like it was like too intimate of an experience. But even but that was a completely unexpected reaction, I think, for everybody, even though it's not like you could read the person's mind. And what turns out is that it actually couldn't get it to work. So the lights were just lighting up randomly, actually. <laughs> but um, everybody had such an intense emotional reaction to this, um, you know, this prototype. Um, and you would have never, um, you know, anticipated this reaction from a from something that was just a video or a presentation or. Or, or, or just like a, you know, a prop on a podium. It had to be something that you actually like put on and held. For sure, like the tactility of it makes such a difference. And I think it's really interesting what you're talking about because like, you know, in so many ways, like our brain is the ultimate technological black box. Like we have no idea what goes on. And people have this like real technological like ignorance of stuff like EEG. I find that super common. My students are constantly like, we have an EEG in the department and the students are playing with it all the time and, you know, thinking like, oh yeah, I can build... I can build myself like a, a, a mind reading device and they start to delve into this, um, uh, oh, what's the word, like weird mysticism around the technology. And I always find that really funny, um, like how they get this kind of like bizarre spiritual influence that starts to like come as soon as they start playing with anything interfaces, especially with like human bodies or rhythms or whatever. Uh, um, I have to say my, my students do the same thing with EEG, but then they quickly realize how little information you can gain out of it. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. And totally. then actually, I, I, it's like a random data stream to create like random visualizations. And that's pretty fun. I see. I love it when they start to play with that like weird line between like truth and untruth and the manipulation um, of data influence perceptions, like uh, viewer perceptions of what's actually just with how like, aesthetic 
visualization. Yeah, I love it when they start playing with that. That's for certain. Yeah, when it comes to that kind of data visualization, I like I always am kind of, you know, um, droning on about like doing meaningful mappings. So right. if you a random like number generator to feed your visualization and it will be just as interesting, then you maybe you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Totally. Totally. Well, I think that's one of those like learning experiences where is like more valuable than the success because I find when I have I've had a few students that have gone on to pretty big success right out of undergrad but they almost didn't have enough of those like mind-bending like failures to kind of push beyond that like level um you know they, they get that like glimpse of success or technological success and they get so hung up on it that they become artists and they get situated in a culture but then they ultimately kind of like go into the tech industry where they can kind of just see things through to like a, a final point that has some I don't know, some like ultimate uh, usability or something. I always find that kind of unfortunate. Like the play seems to disappear at some point if they don't do fail think, enough. Do you think most of your students want to go into industry and work in the tech industry? No, I think most of them, they, they want to be, uh, they, they want to be practicing artists. That is, that is for darn sure. They're just, you know, this tier where they're just sold the idea that that's uh, what value, what value is there in it? So I'm always telling them like, you know, we, uh, we make culture like what is what is of greater value than making culture and if they can sell their parents on that idea uh see i still deal with 22 year olds most of my day so i would say about like my students are about half and half going into because like we're a school of art and design so i would say about half of them want to go, go into industry and half want to be artists but i mm -hmm. what i'm always to do is to encourage them that they can make um that there's something they can only in a school and not at a company because what i've totally. noticed is a lot of students want to make work that looks corporate already. Totally. Uh, but um i think that actually like they, they stand out to companies more when they have a really unique point of view so uh, i agree with you and you can demonstrate that you're a very like um thoughtful designer um with work um that is core and artistic and um and you know it doesn't have to have to be like a very bland mobile application in order to be a good portfolio piece for a uh, industry job. Yeah, and yeah, I completely agree with you there. And I think it's super frustrating. And maybe uh, you could like speak to this a little bit, but I frustrating. Love to play with that corporate aesthetic, but they don't do it in a in a critical way. Like examining like the roots of aesthetics. Like I was I was reading some articles a couple of days ago about how you know with the tech world being so largely like white and male and affluent that. Is then have this like racism and sexism and stuff and then to see these students come in here and just like ape these these aesthetics but without any sense of like irony or or criticality is something that i find like uh super disheartening yeah i try to teach that in my class it, it takes a little while for an undergraduate to get there to think of an interface as something that you think with and then right. it's structuring your thoughts that's what a lot of my research is on and so yeah, i try absolutely. to you know introduce that into the class and that you're actually like designing um human behavior and you're designing totally. the way are structuring their thoughts with technology Absolutely. And, and, and and more than anything it has been a controversial week for diversity but diversity at least is um helpful in that like um there should be a more like diverse set of people deciding um deciding how to design these interfaces which are actually structuring the thoughts of you know everybody not just a small not, not just one part of the population I'm with you on that. And, uh, you know, just speaking to that a little bit further, if you don't mind, like I'm something I've been playing with with my students recently is uh, using like architecture, like physical architecture as an example, when they don't understand that with like UX and UI design. Um, 
and actually taking them into getting them to like research a building on campus, like a historical building, understanding who the architect was when it was built and walking them around like the architecture and showing them like getting them to really like look and listen, going back to some like real fundamental art stuff and realizing like how much architecture affects their thoughts and affects their feelings and affects like what it is that they accomplish or don't in a day. And then getting them to relate that back in writing to, uh, to like various interfaces that we might build in class. And it's been super effective actually in getting them to like cross that bridge between the physical and digital divide. Because although they seem to be super in tune with like using all these different things, they don't have that, that critical sense of how much it relates to physicality yet. That's a really good assignment. I might steal that too. Um, steal but it. I have, yeah, go for it. I have to say it is easier to like communicate these concepts with physical interfaces than it is with software ones for some reason. Um, so I don't do, I don't walk people through architecture, but I always show, I can't remember the artist name right now. I really apologize. But um, there's, um, there's a really beautiful um, installation piece where you walk into a room and on the on the shelves, there's just all these different platform shoes of all heights, and then they're labeled. So based on your height, you take the shoes off the shelf. And what it does is it makes every single person equal, equal right. height, so that you're all looking at each other on the same level. And um, when you show that piece, like just visually, like everybody immediately gets it. Um, and then I totally. then I I follow that right away by saying like, so what does this mean for software? That's an excellent. I love that prompt. I can't remember who the artist is either. I, I totally know what you're talking about because it was making the rounds on social media there a little while ago. Oh, I'm sure I have a. Old, it's an old piece, but I, for some reason, it's just recently been making the rounds on social media. I wonder why. I know. Yeah, I, it's, it's super interesting, right? Um, I, I'm going to remember that. I think I probably bookmarked it somewhere, but I'm an idiot when it comes to actually remembering I, artist I names. The, the piece is called Level, and I think it's. I think the, the artist's name is Lemmer, but I'm not sure. But it's like a, but it's so much easier to understand, um, you know, the, you know, the the way power is distributed by an interface with that piece with a physical with a physical piece than it is with with something that's purely digital. Um, totally, yeah, I agree. It with really you. helps the students to like make that jump when you start with something physical. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I'm completely there with you. Well, I'd be interested in hearing about any favorite assignments. Well, with the projects, I generally let people, um, I do three small projects leading to a final project. And I don't mind if people do all different projects or if they build on the same project all semester. Um, and I tend to be pretty open-ended about that so that people can um, use the class for um, whatever their purposes are. But one of the exercises I do in class, which is one of my favorites, is I do a workshop on writing one-sentence sci-fi stories. And I've been doing this for a while. Um, and I based it on, um, there's a short story by J.G. Ballard called Answers to a Questionnaire. Um, and the subject matter of the story is not like necessarily relevant to my class, but the structure of the story is very interesting. And so what it is, is actually it's a two-page short story um, where it's, only the answers to a questionnaire. So all the questions are omitted from the story. And by reading the answers, you actually understand what happened. And so the, I, I use that as like a formula for the students to start writing their own stories. Um, so you, you could ask yourself like, uh, I kind of designed this formula for how to do it. So examine a current trend in society or technology, extrapolate that, uh, and then ask yourself like a what if question. So like what if um, instead of 100 people using it, tens of millions of people are using it. 
what if instead of using this once a day, you use it a thousand times a day? So trying to like um, teach people to do that kind of extrapolative jump. And then um, I have people write down lots and lots of answers. And then the answers just become these little snippets of stories. Um, and so um, usually people share the stories first and then they share what the question was that prompted the story. And uh, so that's always a really, um, it's, it's a really good exercise. And I've been doing this workshop in a lot of places. And it, what it's really interesting is that it reveals um, the level of optimism or, or cynicism in a group of people. Because um, I've done it with, you know, some groups um, where I, I went to a conference called Better World by Design. And people mm -hmm. actually were, you know, pretty like optimistic and, um, you know, you know, pessimistic, a nice healthy mixture in that group. And then in another group, in another conference um, that was more like people who tend to critique technology, they could not come up with like a positive idea at all. Like, cause sometimes I, you know, <laughs> ask them to write a utopian story and then do this another round with a dystopian stories, even in the like utopian round, they couldn't come up with like a single positive story. They couldn't even identify something in the, in the world today that they thought was a positive trend. Um, and then I went, I recently went to Columbia, which apparently is very high on the like happiness index. And they couldn't come up with anything negative. They were just, you know, everything everything they came up with was like a utopian story. And so it was really interesting to see how people tend to, um, you know, swing from one of these, these utopian and dystopian extremes. And one of the things I always try to, you know, teach people through the exercise is that it's uh, most productive to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I love that assignment idea. That's one I will need to steal, if you don't mind. That sounds like tremendous for especially for the objectives of the course that I'm teaching yeah especially for, if you're doing a lot of writing I think you should steal it I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll send it to you later okay sounds good I'll send you mine also um well I guess oh that's a tough one to follow up with like an assignment that I get uh, something that I've been playing with lately is giving them like a, an already built technology and then them having to like reverse engineer it to make like a cultural statement which has been kind of fun um so, for instance, last year they teamed up uh, and they were, well, what's the best example? I'm trying to think of like a particular student that I can like use as an example for this. Um, but more or less like, so last year we did some stuff on facial recognition and we were talking a lot about uh, facial recognition. And we were talking about that Black Mirror episode where everybody has the like ocular implants that record everything that happens and you can like play moments back and you can share them. And it's like this really crazy social network. Um, and so we were talking about like facial recognition and like what what potential benefits could it have one of the most compelling uh projects that one of my students theorized and then they actually ended up building um who's an african-american student and he wanted to make a device that would make him feel more comfortable out in the world so he he built this uh he built this like facial recognition software that um more or less he never got as far as making the goggles but he made a like an output that reinterpreted his surroundings and changed everybody uh, to being African-American. So all the people around him were then, you know, uh, no longer just like a, a melting pot of whatever. I don't really agree with that whole melting pot thing, but I'm not American, so I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, but I definitely thought that was like a really profound and sad statement. Like on one hand, it was this kind of like utopian, like live in the world you want. But on the other hand, coming from a 19-year-old, it was really sad that you know, like his cultural critique was like just wanting to retreat more and more into into like uh, this kind of like tribal attitude, which I found super fascinating. And a bunch of them were uh, playing with those ideas. Some other students came up with the idea of using facial recognition to 
reverse engineer a little like BB-8 uh, robot from Star Trek and they turned it into BB-8 and it would go around and make judgments on people uh, based on facial characteristics. It would just drive around the school and do all this crazy stuff. And it was horrific. Um, luckily, it broke down really quickly. But Do you have trouble getting your students to do anything that's like not really dystopian? Oh, my gosh. So much trouble with that. They are the most so jaded trouble. little humans, right? They are the most jaded people. Um, I don't know. It's, it's one and, of the biggest... Um, I noticed that actually in new media art is a lot of the art with technology is really dystopian and it's really hard to get the students to actually build anything that isn't like really ironic and cynical and dystopian. Oh my gosh, they're the most ironic people I've ever met. And I don't know when that shift happened. Like I don't, I guess, you know, I'm 10 years older than my oldest students, um, but I find them, maybe I'm cynical too. I don't, I got to do some self-reflection on that one. Maybe oh, I'm more cynical know. than I, I think. think but. It just, it's not just them, because when you look at, like, um, the, you know, the pieces that are really popular right now in art yeah. and technology, they're pretty cynical, too. Yeah, are they like, ever? It's like a real, um, there's a real, like, you know, I don't know, like, what's the word? Out, not outbreak, but... Um, like epidemic or something? Yes, an epidemic of cynicism. Is there ever, yeah. And, um, yeah. and that's what scares me, because um, if all the people who are able to be critical are totally cynical, mm -hmm. um, that's not going to be good, because the people who are actually building the technology are kind of blindly optimistic and sort of naive with what they're doing. And totally. so and that's just not sorry, good. I'm, it isn't good. And, you know, that, that weird blind optimism, I think um, it's something I talked about in a panel last year at CAA, but this like weird tie with techno solutionism and libertarianism that like pervades silicon valley and stuff too it is coming from this super like white male heteronormative gaze that everything's fine you know for for them everything's fine so all the technologies that get outputted are just like they lack that criticality and we need people like making these technologies that have this more egalitarian um like demarginalizing kind of element to them um because, yeah, I, I face the same I thing. What I worry about, though, is that the people who are able to see the flaws in what's getting built are just becoming so cynical that they're kind of giving up. Totally. I'm right there with you. And that's, you know, bringing it to sci-fi a little bit. Like, the first sci-fi that I ever got into, other than uh, Back to the Future, because I loved the DeLorean as a car guy um, at whatever, three years old or whatever I was, um, but was uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Like, Roddenberry's you know, super utopian, although uh, kind of uncritical, like perspective on the future and it's still got so many flaws. Uh, but like that has totally been lost even in like so much science fiction production that we see. Like when you see the remake of Westworld, um, you know, it's like really kind of terrifying or Black Mirror or any of the things that a lot of these students are digesting on their weekends, you know, it's all real negative compared to like a Sagan or a Roddenberry kind of vision of the future or even stuff that you would sometimes see in like Ian M. Banks's stuff where there are these like glimmers of, of, uh, of hope, you know, there seems to be less and less. Yeah. I, I see that a lot and I really try to keep the students from doing that. And, um, I've sort of been looking towards, um, the way um, future studies works recently. Um, so like in future studies, I'm just, I'm like very much generalizing, but you kind of think about um, what is possible, what is likely and what is preferred. Right. That's and so awesome. like, you know, trying to get students to think about what would be preferable 
um, is like, it's really hard to get them to do it. Um, but mm -hmm. it's, I think really worth getting them to do it. Um, totally. because just making the, like doing this like very cynical artwork, um, it's not going to make a dent on the, you know, techno solutionist, naive, um, blindly optimistic world of Silicon Valley. No, it isn't. And also, um, they're so, you know, what, what I worry about is if they want to go, like, insert themselves into that world and try to make a difference is that that Silicon Valley world doesn't have any room for that kind of thinking. It's such a, like, another tribe, you know, like, no, we're good. Let's just, like, exclude all that kind of crazy critical thinking um, because it's going to get in the way of uh, profitability and short-term profitability, especially, which is deeply concerning to me. I agree with you. But yeah, um, like thinking about that, sometimes technology is not always the answer. Definitely. I'm that's, definitely uh, on board with you there. Yeah. Yeah. I, another yeah the techno sorry, you go, you go, Sophia. Well, I'm talking about techno solutionism exactly. I bet I, I'm going to probably say what you're going to say. But I, an example I use in um, my class very often is um, there's those robots, those robotic harp seals they made in Japan um, for people who are like socially isolated in nursing homes. And they're really yeah. cute and they're really comforting. And they do make people feel less lonely, um, but it's a simulation of, you know, a connection with something. And like, and then I, you know, contrasting with that, I saw um, people running a preschool out of a nursing home. And that's, um, and that was really effective too. And like, it was good for both the, you know, the, the seniors who were living in the nursing home and it was great for the kids. And it's not a simulation. That's actually like a real, um, real connection with people. And so it's really important yeah. to just think about, not just think about, you know, how can I use uh, how how can I use technology to solve this problem? Because then then you also kind of see students sometimes wanting to build a mobile app for almost every problem. Right. Absolutely. I see that constantly where they're like, "Can we just do app development?" And I'm like, "No, let's let's give or up on app, app development for a while." It's a wearable technology. Um, for a while, mm -hmm. it was mobile 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 apps. It's still mobile mm -hmm. apps a little bit, but also like, how can we make things better by putting sensors on the body? Right. Totally. And uh, they're super obsessed. At least my students are with. Um, like actually making augmented reality more a part of their day-to-day -day life, uh, which oh, I yeah. find super interesting because I felt like that was going to be, you know, I already feel like VR and augmented reality are sort of like, maybe they haven't had their full like cultural insertion yet, but in terms of like criticality and, and uh, making and stuff, they're kind of not on the way out, but they're not on the uphill climb anymore. And they're, the students like still obsession with that is really interesting. Sometimes I think it's purely guided by the, by the uh, like filters for whatever they're using. I don't know, but anyway, that's just my, my jaded outlook on that. Um, but yeah, the techno solutionism thing I find uh, wildly disheartening. And I think in some of my favorite like sci-fi is, you know, you see cultures where there's like no money or people are actually like interacting. You don't see them like constantly immersed in, in solving all problems with like, little gadgets and stuff. Um, yet they have all these like wonderful technologies that take them to, yeah, whatever, if it's time travel or whether it's, you know, warp or whatever the case may be, that it's still about like exploration and personal development and uh, understanding of like cultures and stuff like that. And I find that like so much more interesting than I do just like tossing circuit boards at an issue. Yeah. And, you know, I, one thing I noticed, um, especially even when I was at the Media Lab, is how many people who do AR stuff and haven't read all the sci-fi about AR that's been around for a long, long time and kind of warns of where things can go wrong. And yeah. I think like if you're working in on AR, which and so many of my students actually now want to go into AR and VR, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. they need to read 
all those stories that, you know, um, they've been around a while and like, you know, warn you about where things can get a little bit, um, a little bit dicey. Totally. And when you're talking about like utopian versus dystopian and stuff, no matter what side of the spectrum you fall on, like one of the best things about science fiction and good art that's uh, engaging with like technological processes is exploring that like ragged boundary between like what is possible, um, what's already occurring and like, well, what we actually want from like our society. It's about like actually playing with that weird space in between those um, and kind of like weaving uh, a very rough course, you know, um, at least that's like my perspective on, on the benefits of it. So I'm totally with you. They really do need to like look deeper into history because even you know, artists have been playing with this stuff for a long time too. Like I think about like David Rokeby in the 80s and stuff starting to play with, maybe the technology wasn't there, but the ideas were like embedded in the work. Um, yeah, I sometimes summarize that kind of like uh, avoiding black and white thinking and trying to aim for light to medium gray thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a good way to put it. I'm going to have to play with that with my students, too, because they definitely are. Well, and I think it's like a symptomatic of like a, a culture that is so dichotomized, you know, like everything here. And again, this is speaking as like a non-American and coming from Canada where it's still messed up. But um, everything is just like one way or the other, right or wrong. It's so polarized that I feel like increasingly the students just want to exist on one end of an axis rather than uh, play with any of the ideas. That's a really interesting way of putting it. And I actually kind of think one of the main goals I have in my course is to keep people from, you know, if I can, if I can get people to stop, you know, stop with the binary thinking and, you know, stop trying to be mm -hmm. at these two polar opposites and, you know, be more uncomfortable. Um, I mean, be more comfortable with the middle and being on a yeah. spectrum, I think that would totally. be like, I, I think as, you know, as a, you know, as a professor, I, that would be like a, a huge success for me. I'm with you. I think they need to be, yeah, way more comfortable with their uncomfortability, if that's a word. But because um, especially like with my 18 year old students, the role and so many of them have such uh, pre-prescribed like notions over like everything to do with like race and gender and technology. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say that actually Donna Haraway, um, her latest the title is perfect it's called staying with the trouble yes absolutely yeah. i haven't had the chance to read it i don't know if is it I it's think, great yeah anyway it's great but okay. basically teaching students to stay with the trouble um so perfect. you don't just come up with a solution and then you're done i mean it's gonna your solution might be good in some ways bad in some ways and then you just have to iterate on it totally and you know keep, keep struggling with it there's no utopianism no dystopianism no black and white thinking um but like this this teaching the students to feel comfortable with staying in the trouble, comfortable with, you know, trying to, you know, build, trying to come up with a solution, but knowing it's not going to be perfect. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, well, I think I, sometimes, I think it's important for them to, like, further problematize issues that are in culture, and it doesn't always need to be dystopic the way in which they do it, but they need to start, or they need to play more with that idea that, uh, that they you. should cause trouble. Um, but further, like problematizing technologies is also important, you know, and that can go in a more utopian way when you start to especially like critically examine technologies that are particularly like troublesome or particularly like marginalizing um, or particularly destructive, you know. Uh, anyway, I was just going to say that's why I always do that one sentence sci fi writing course because it kind of reveals which um, side of the spectrum people are on. Um, and you, you kind of notice that people tend to be either really utopian or really dystopian absolutely and, um, they struggle with the opposite yeah definitely do they ever and so trying to get people comfortable to be in the middle is 
I think a, it's, it's like the role of um, role of uh, our, role of us as professors in these classes. Right, and also getting them to just like uh, not always have to be right. Like it's okay to be wrong. You can still get a good grade. You know, everything's so based on like being right and the grades being based off that. It's like it's fine. You can be wrong and still do well. That's a perfect note to wrap this all up on. This was a great episode. I think people from wide-ranging media are going to be really interested in a lot of what you talked about here today. So thank you both. This was really great.